What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Michael Phillips. Sadness, I have a super important job just for you. Really? Mm-hmm. Follow me. And there. Perfect. This is the circle of sadness. Your job is to make sure that all the sadness stays inside of it. Yes, Michael, film spotting is a sadness-free zone. You're only going to get dry-eyed, sober criticism from me, Josh. Glad to hear it. Pixar's latest Inside Out has prominent roles for not just sadness, but fear, anger, and disgust as well. So which emotions did it trigger for us? Our review is coming up. Plus, Massacre Theater in our top five actor-director pairs. There's no crying in podcasting. Ahead on film spotting. Film Spotting is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Right now, one of Mubi's offerings is After Tiller. Mubi's continuing its partnership with the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, which is running June 11 through 21 in New York, with a series of highlights from past festivals, beginning with this National Board of Review winning doc that examines the personal and ethical imperatives that drive abortion providers. That's after Tiller. Also at Mubi is Red Cliff, which Mubi says is a kinetic epic, a clash of swords and colors, the stuff Cinemascope is made for and marks a triumphant return for action legend John Woo. Mubi is showing the complete uncut international version in HD. One more offering here from Mubi, that's Vampire. The movie-going world was saddened last week by the death of Christopher Lee, an icon to generations of cinephiles. In Vampire, directed by Spanish experimental filmmaker Pere Portabella, Lee works a subversive twist on his most enduring persona, Dracula, while a strange, ghostly, avant-garde horror film unfolds on Lee's real-life movie set. Everyday Movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash filmspotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. With me this week, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Michael, good to have you here as always. Josh, it's an honor and a pleasure. I was hoping you would say pleasure. And a pleasure. You know, I do like to take these opportunities, usually when Adam's away, to try something that uh, I don't think he'd let me get away with when it's just you and I. Remember we did that movie Manimals Top 5? <laughs> was it? Wasn't that fun? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I see. I see you'd forgotten all about I, no, that. I forgot about that, and I, I, it's funny. I think. I think Kevin Smith by now has actually forgotten he made that movie. Yes, uh, that's true. We did tie that to, <laughs> to Tusk. Tusk. Yes. See, I'd forgotten the title. Well, we're going to play it safe on this show a little bit and revisit a top five as we've been doing this summer. It's a top five you and I did. Actor, director pairs. We'll do that later in the show. But first, Pixar has made heroes out of mute robots, anxious clownfish, a foodie rat, 
and an irritable 80-year-old man. For their next mission, they go inside out. So, Riley, how was the first day of school? Fine, I guess. Did you guys pick up on that? Sure did. Something's wrong. Signal the husband. looking at us. What did she say? Oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What is it, woman? What? I'm joy. This is sadness. That's anger. What? This is disgust. Uh, and that's fear. Ah! We're Riley's emotions. <laughs> These are Riley's memories. They're mostly happy, you'll notice, not to brag. I wanted to maybe hold one. What happened? Sadness. She did something to the memory. Is everything okay? I don't know. Take it back, Joy. Joy. Joy, no. Let's Wait. Go. The core memories. Ah! No, 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 no. Can I say that curse word now? Journey with me, if you will, Michael, inside the mind of a 12-year-old girl. I know from experience it can be a confounding place, but if we stick together, I think we'll be fine. This is, of course, where Inside Out, the latest Disney Pixar film, takes us. Mostly set inside the head of 12-year-old Riley, voiced by Caitlin Diaz, the movie imagines that Riley's state of mind is managed by a team of personified emotions. There's Joy, voiced by Amy Poehler, Sadness, Phyllis Smith, Fear, Bill Hader, Anger, Louis Black, and Disgust, Mindy Kaling. They've had a fairly easy time of things so far as the only child of affluent, loving parents. Riley hasn't faced many bumps in life. But with the family having to move from Minnesota to San Francisco to say nothing of impending puberty, Riley's world gets shaken up. And Joy finds that her position as the dominant emotion on the team is being challenged by sadness. In your Chicago Tribune review, Michael, you called Inside Out the best Disney Pixar film since up. Now, setting Brave aside, which I really like, though I can see how it feels more like a Disney film than a Pixar one, I think this is no small point. Cars 2 and Monsters University were low points for Pixar, not least because both were sequels. Yet Inside Out is not only very good, but I think it excels in the ways that the best Pixar movies do. By taking a childishly simple high concept and ingeniously envisioning it with top-notch animation, a lot of wit, and a dollop of wisdom. So first I want to ask why you think Inside Out is a return to form for Pixar. But also, just so things don't become boringly gushy, I also want to know, what's your problem with Bing Bong? <laughs> we'll get to that. We we'll should, well, that. we should explain that Bing, uh, Bing Bong is the imaginary friend of uh, the protagonist, 11-year-old Riley, and uh, he makes an appearance. Uh, we meet him about halfway through. Midway I'd point, say. yeah, and um, and that's that's the most Toy Story esque aspect of uh, this film, directed by Pete Docter. But I, I'm a tick below you on on the overall result of Inside Out. And let me, okay. And the the funny thing is, it's it's pretty easy to say that Inside Out is the best Pixar. I, I corporately we should say Disney Pixar, but it's Pixar <laughs> Pixar film since Up in 2009. But that's saying not very much, as you said. Monsters University and Cars two these are these are mediocrities, mm-hmm. uh, much more like sub level DreamWorks kind of animation. Brave was pretty good, and but this is more interesting just because it's the storytelling is just more novel. But um, you know, you know, yes, it's it sounds like a grand claim to say it's the best one they've done since Up. But um, before I start talking about what I really like about the film. Um, I still came out of it the first time, and especially the second time on on a re, on a repeat viewing, 
thinking, I don't know if we're ever going to get that streak that I that I was so crazy about with Pixar with Wally, Ratatouille, and Up, where mm-hmm. you had four serious, true animation masterworks of completely different personalities and and rhythms. And I, I you know, since then, I, to me, this is a step down. This is this feels a little just well, a little, a little it's less. It's unfair to expect that such a streak could continue. We were spoiled. Hey, the Hawks Let's keep winning the way. Hawks keep winning yeah, the Stanley and Cup. Exactly. I mean, and being from Chicago, I think the Bulls run of championships, we seem to expect these sorts of runs, right? But they don't happen. <laughs> they don't happen in sports often. They don't happen in the movies often when it comes to a studio. So is it fair to put those expectations on Pixar? Maybe not, but still it's fair to take these films on a film by film basis right, and yeah. say do we think they're worthy animation films in a genre that's really hit a high point in the yeah. last decade or two? Right, right. It's a good no. It's a good point. It's a good point. And I think I think you're you're on the money when you. I mean, this is this comes from a fantastically simple and and single. You know, one single idea. You know, what if these emotions were the characters in the film? And that's not necessarily brand new. Other people have tried this idea, but but if you have a uh, an idea that a simple and elemental that any willing age for this film can understand, then you can kind of go a little crazy with the story and with some of the detours as this film does. Now, I think one of the things the script, which was worked on by several different people, really does well is they, they do split the time cannily, really smartly between what's going on inside the head among these five characters at the at the control panel and what's going on in quote real life you know when we see Riley really struggling and and coping as best she can in sort of this uh, in this uncomprehending way uh, with the residual effects of this move she doesn't really know how to respond to her own emotions when she's thrown out of whack and thrown into this new situation where her parents are still waiting for the moving van to show up a few days after they've gotten to their somewhat dingy new apartment in San Francisco. Um, you know, it, it's 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 the first truly sad time in her life, and that's that is again, it's a simple premise. I think a lot of a lot of people of all ages can understand that. I think what a lot of people aren't going to be really necessarily prepared for is how much of the middle section of the film is devoted to kind of getting Riley uh, in and then slowly, gradually, and uh, right at the kind of the edge of a dangerous situation out of her worst sort of spell, her darkest moments, right? And as as this happens, we have Joy, Amy Poehler, and Sadness, the Phyllis Smith character, uh, sort of um, flung into her subconscious and her long-term memory storage, and therefore the islands of personality that Riley has sort of built for herself that are fed by core memories. This is all getting very complicated. Yeah. Right? So this is where this simple idea gets a little more complicated. <laughs> and you have the world building they have to kind of follow. This sort of turns into a bit of a Wreck-It Ralph experience. Remember that? Mm, yeah. Film, a film I was sort of mixed on. Very frantic. Frantic. And, and, and this middle section of Inside Out, Josh, to me, is the one that I, I got the itchiest with on the second hmm. viewing. I just thought, you know, relentlessly clever and in that depending on where these two characters are actually poking around in in Riley's subconscious and everything you know the animation styles change when she, when they enter like a realm of abstract thought you know the animation itself turns very flat and kind of one dimensional starts looking like Gerald McBoing Boing cartoons from the 50s as many people have pointed out 
you know, all that's very clever. And some of that, you know, the, the five, six, seven-year-olds in the audience won't really, you know, they won't be referencing anything in their head as they watch it. They're just simply going to be kind of in a phantom toll booth way, I think, you know, hopefully following this journey as it goes. And some of it's actually very emotionally fraught. And, of course, this this is Pixar's and Disney's too, but Pixar's especially. Pixar's kind of stock and trade. They really, they really you know, when you think of the first half hour of Wally and really how how most animation houses wouldn't even think twice about even risking something like a an end of the world premise and a and a and almost a nonverbal silent yeah, film silent opening film. right yeah and of course now we look back at the first half hour of Wally as like holy moly you know have they ever done better that's what everyone talks about yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I don't I don't have the same I don't think there's sections of Inside Out that that match that but the bookend the first third and the final third I think are almost up to Pixar's best level. But but you think you think more of it, I think. I do. Though the point about how it balances the real life scenes and the interior scenes, I was surprised how much time they spent outside in the real world as you put it, and I think that is key because it roots this what could have been. I didn't find it quite as wrecked Ralphish, quite as frantic because it does root what could have been this cartoonish experience where we're just using the kid as an excuse to get inside and that's where all the fun is going to be. No, Mm. this movie is mostly concerned about real life. It just happens to be filtering those real life experiences through this inventive, fantastic other prism, which does help, I think, us understand how do we deal with emotions in actual life now that we've seen them playfully depicted here. So I did like how they paid Mm -hmm, attention to mm -hmm. that aspect of it. And what you say about the crazy detours that the story takes, uh, that is a distinction. I think the way Inside Out handles that is a distinction between Pixar and other inferior animated production houses, whereas those places might take this idea, let's personify emotions in a girl's head and use that as an excuse. Okay, we've got the great idea. We're done. Now let's just animate it. Let's throw in a few jokes, a few here for mom and dad, a few here for the kids. Our work is done. I feel like Pixar, the filmmakers who are working for them and are at their best, and Pete Doctor has been one of those, uses that as freedom. We've got this kernel of an idea, which is freedom, a launching pad to go all of these places. Their work is not done. Their work is just beginning when they have that kernel of an idea. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why I appreciated the middle section a little bit more than you did, is because I almost felt as if each area of the mind these two characters, Joy and Sadness, explore could be a brilliant little short film itself. Part of it is the animation style changes just slightly. A lot of times it's coloring. You know, the subconscious is going to be dark and a little bit dreary. And then we have the abstract thought section, I think is just brilliant. I don't mm. know if it's a tour de force on the level of Wally's opening. This, as is, you were this talking is where about. they turn into essentially Picasso paintings. Briefly yeah, the, the, and, the cubism yeah. comes yeah. into play. The animation <laughs> style completely changes. And I have yet to wrap my mind around. I tell around. you, kids are so and sick of the cubist <laughs> jokes in Pixar. <laughs> They've seen sick it, a, of it a million times. <laughs> I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what are all the psychological implications that or references they may be getting at here, the screenwriters with little sly jokes. I can't wait to watch this movie again, and that section in particular, because I just don't have the background in psychology to know what they're doing with this concept of abstract thought. And here, it's a shortcut, essentially, the characters are trying to take to get back to the main control room where they normally spend their time. So they jump into this tunnel called abstract thought. But just visually... 
It's so inventive and brilliant. And each section, whether they're going to the subconscious, whether they're going to Dream Productions, which is the mini Hollywood studio that produces Riley's Dreams, or in the case when things go awry here, a very, very funny nightmare. Those are all, again, little short brilliant films that I feel were stacking up on top of each other and also these avenues where the animators were just like, wow, look what we can do now that we've constructed yeah, this world. Yeah, a little bit. I, I'm, I'm still, frankly, even if there are two viewings, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is really a strikingly original style of animation, though. Even with these massive change-ups you're talking about where, where they go into like abstract thought and you're getting like suddenly a very different animation approaches to what's happening. But um, the 2D joke there, by the way, works even better if you are stuck viewing the film in 3D as I was. <laughs> <laughs> I love the irony of that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, this sounds like just a dopey thing to say, but there's something about the the number of shots where the backgrounds are are just simply mountains and mountains and towers and towers of these little tiny colored balls which mm-hmm. represent the the individual memories uh, that are experienced by and emotions that are experienced by Riley right and they and they're just basically going into long-term storage eventually but it, it's kind of there's something about this sort of like brightly colored warehouse that after a while gets a tad monotonous, I think, to look at. And and I guess I guess I haven't really resolved how I'd work around that because I think the idea itself of each emotion and each core memory kind of, you know, being created as and represented by this round ball that comes down jolly ball style right. down the track and then goes into storage. That's actually, a, that's another great, simple, effective idea. But... I, I guess when they get to that middle section, Josh, a couple, th- you know, not just the script goes a little awry for me, but but also the, the animation style gets a little bland. And I did something I didn't, I wish I had sort of addressed more fully in the in the Tribune review, but there's more to talk about with this one than than, than a lot of animated films got, th- than there was, say, with Ice Age 3. Okay? That, well, all right, yes. All right, for, there, was nothing, there was nothing to talk about that. They, you know, there's another Ice Age. That's all you can say. Wait, Joy, you could get lost in there. Think positive. Okay. I'm positive you will get lost in there. That's long-term memory. An endless warrant of corridors and shelves. I read about it in the manuals. The manuals? The manuals! You read the manuals! Yeah. So you know the way back to headquarters. I I guess. (laughs) You are my map. Let's go, lead on, mind map. Show me where we're going. Okay, only uh, I'm too sad to walk. Just give me a few hours to... Oh! There is a vastness, I'd say, to the animated space. And part of it is this storage area you're talking about where you see rows and rows and rows of these balls that represent memories. But there's also, you reference, the islands of personality. And as we talk about it, it's going to sound hopelessly convoluted, but I think they do a fairly good job of laying that out, building that world so it makes sense. But essentially, these islands of personality are the things that matter to Riley and have come to define her. So right. one is hockey. Honest, she, she's honest, a hockey player. Honesty, 
island, yes. family island, right? Friendship is one. Right. And the one that, here's the one that hit me hard, Goofball Island. So this represents, since she was a little girl, just the silly things that kids do. And one of those things was making monkey faces and noises with her dad. So after Riley has begun to sulk and talks back to her parents, which is a rare thing in this case, because of her emotions and the turmoil she's experiencing, her dad goes up to cheer her up. Again, here's a nice interplay of the real life and the animated. And this is Kyle, this is Kyle McLaughlin. Is yeah, the, uh, voice and of Diane the Lane is the voice of the mother. Yeah, they're good. And they're good. They are good. A strange couple. <laughs> when I saw that after, I was like, oh, okay. But they do a good job. The father goes up to console Riley, and he tries to use this monkey face and voice thing they've always done. And she just kind of glares yeah, at him. Yeah, he's got terrible timing as a just father, got, right? He's well, got he's to read the situation. I will say the father comes off a little bad here. I, I didn't like that. Yeah. But <laughs> this moment, this moment where we go inside and Goofball Island starts to crumble and fall apart because she's not responding in that way she used to. Part of it is, yes, bad timing on the father's part because of the emotional turmoil she's undergoing. But it's also part of, you know, just growing up. Growing up. Kids grow out of that goofiness. Right. And, and this, is the whole, this is the whole thing with the Bing Bong plot line, right? Where, you, where you have this, this, you know, this another bit. major character that comes in I find the most tedious in the film. All right, we'll get to Bing Bong. <laughs> we'll get to Bing You'll get your Bing Bong angst out. But right. I do think this, is, this scene... I do want to point out as a good example of Pixar just, you know, tugging at the heartstrings. There's no denying they're doing that. But within the artistry of the animation and the story itself, that that one really hit home to me in here's a way of depicting just the experience of growing up and changing in mm. some way that is inevitable but lamentable in a way. Yeah, and I think the film, it wouldn't work if the film... That scene you're talking about wouldn't work if the film had had shorted the real life sequences, or or, or if it turned them more, uh, well, just more perfunctory. I mean, yep. I mean, it's half the movie, and, and it so has when we to be. see, so when we see visually this island, which means nothing to us, it's made up, crumbling and falling into this abyss. That actually moved me, and there's no re- nothing in Wreck It Ralph is moving on that level, right? Right, and so there's a, there's a reason why it did move me here. I right, think. I, there may be my my Bing Bong problem. All right, let's get to Bing which, Bong, which which I've already taken up with you know uh, my shrink, but um, uh, <laughs> I understand uh, my, that. my Bing Bong problem is I think because it has an idea that is not unfamiliar to the Pixar world, especially with the Toy Story films, of this idea of like the 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 very very wrenching and difficult parting of ways of of a child and sort of childhood uh, treasures right i think that's so lingeringly stretched out and going for pathos i just felt like it's it went beyond hard talking to kind of heart yanking and when you when you throw on top of that richard kind who's uh, it was an actor who even when he's underplaying is overplaying it's just to me. It was a little like, let me get out. Enough, enough of this. Let's, Bing bong, rub you the wrong way. And, yeah. and not just that, but just I think at that point in that midsection, um, I, I think they may have erred in, in in leaving the human characters out of the equation for just a few too many minutes. You know, that may just be a matter of story mechanics. You know, just leaving the human characters out of the equation a few too many minutes. You're listening to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. That's Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune sitting in for Adam Kempinar. And we are talking about Inside Out and debating, yes, 
bing bong. So, okay, <laughs> Richard Kind, you're right. Pixar, which usually does a brilliant job of voice casting, I think here maybe pushed a little bit too far. He's right. I mean, you don't need uh, bing bong who he's is not wrong for it. He's just too much. He's too right. He's too right. I think. I mean, bing bong looks a little bit like an elephant, but he's made of cotton candy and he cries tears. Of candy. Of candy. So maybe you don't need Richard Kind's voice on top of that <laughs> characterization. But you know what? Childhood imaginary friends, I would imagine, if I had one, I can't remember it, Bing Bong faded away, you know? Right. And, and for me, it's just, it's a sad thing, but it's true. But I think they would be annoying. I mean, when, when kids are playing, they're kind of the, like that and lost in their heads. They're loud like he is and unaware of other right. people around them and imaginative. Uh, so, I'm, so not, I gave I'm not talking pass. about David Niven. So you know? I, I, I don't <laughs> want like George Sanders to come in. But, but uh, it's, just, it's just a matter of it being just a little, not just in the comedy, but I think in the pathos. It's just, it's just See, that it's pushier than the rest of the, the movie. That worked for me. I was glad how bing bong made his exit i will say because again it represented in another way what a lot of this movie is about it's not necessarily about the in your face today trauma that riley is facing which is this move i mean that's certainly important but it's also about her just moving on to another stage of life so i like how that character served that purpose i see your point i see your point i think um if I was a little more in love with the Toy Story movies in general, that that's the most, as I've said, the most Toy Story-esque kind of brand, I can see the brand of sentiment yeah. there. And I, I, again, I'll, someday I'll figure out why, and part of it's just visually, but someday I'll figure out why I don't love those movies a little more or I don't rank them personally higher than I do in the Pixar oeuvre. Can we say oeuvre? Um, not for Pixar. Okay, no, uh, let's, the canon. Let's stick with um, the canon. The list. Let's just yeah, list. The list seems more fitting. I think uh, without spoiling the ending, there's there is a, a moment and an idea that comes up late where it suddenly this idea of the five simple emotions expands to accommodate Riley's say first significant truly mixed emotion mm. and that i thought was inspired and i thought that that's where that's where the movie starts getting great again you know and, and i thought i thought uh you know it's not it's not really like a big reveal or anything it's just simply a great idea that seems completely inevitable and right and it brings you right back to the human story and um uh, you know the film. The film, yes, it's uneven from my perspective, but it's also damn well worth seeing. And that mixed emotion element you're talking about, for me, I think it's right there from the start. I think they follow it through. It's this. There's a reason that joy is character one A, and I think sadness is character one B. And Phyllis Smith, for my money, gives the best vocal performance She's in the great, film great, as sadness perfect, yes. because it's it's like it, she, her sentences trail off. Every sentence trails off as if she's maybe losing energy or interest in finishing them. But they're also something like these faint echoes that are just continuing despite themselves. They, they don't even right. want to be heard anymore, but you keep hearing them. And there's there's something true to that, to this idea of coming to terms with the fact that sadness is not something we can just obliterate. You know, at, at the start, that's clearly what the character Joy wants to do. They aim for a day with only Joy, and that's a successful day. And as Riley grows up, as we all grow, it's, it's a measure of maturity of learning to live with sadness. Right. And, and, and I think that's the journey yeah. that at its best Inside Out does take us through. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a it's sort of a gentle rebuke maybe to parents who were obsessed with keeping their kids cheerful. Happy, happy, and, joy, joy. And, yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, I think the, in a way the script writers are probably talking to themselves <laughs> if they are parents. And 
Again, that's a pretty sophisticated story resolution they go for, and they and they do achieve it. Now, I'm nowhere near the response of some critics to Inside Out when I when I read the Peter De Bruges review in Variety, who said it's it's not, it promises to forever change the way people think about the way people think. I mean, that's that's <laughs> See, that's, that's a big claim. You yeah, know? And that's getting into the psychology of it, which I need to do a little more that's, thinking about. I just don't know if the film's got that much. For, <laughs> and he, he says, at the risk of hyperbole, people will be thinking in terms of these anthropomorphized emotions long after movies as we know them are gone. Okay. So, well, I mean, that's he's really putting it up there with like Melies, he, he, yeah, you know, like uh, Trip yeah. to the Moon. Now uh, we're now we're talking canon, aren't we? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm just not. <laughs> I, I don't think the film l- looks and unfolds distinctively enough in every aspect to to support that kind of claim. Um, well, but but question, you're you're halfway up to there. Yeah, you're halfway I, you know, up to there. I think the question for me when you're even talking in those terms is how much, and this is something a revisit would help me answer. How much is the movie dumbing down this psychology to make it work for the concept, or how much is it? really playing with psychological understanding smartly and cleverly and expanding the way we can think about things. Yeah. If it's the latter, what that review is talking about may may be onto something. But for a first viewing, it's fun and clever and witty and smarter than most children's films you're going to see. Um, and yeah, putting yeah. Pixar, at least in my mind, back on track. Back on track. Yeah. Inside Out is open now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us at feedback at filmspotting.net. Coming up, Josh and I will try to keep our emotions in check for Massacre Theater. Oh, that's okay, Michael. There is crying in Massacre Theater. Stay with us. I thought I found myself going to get into Harvard? I'm from a poor, crime-filled neighborhood, raised by a single mother, don't know my dad, blah, blah. It's cliche. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Malcolm Adekambi. I'm a straight-A student with nearly perfect SAT scores. You probably got, like, one of those photogenic brains. <laughs> you mean photographic memory? What'd I just say? I mean, yeah, you, you said it. Yeah, reiterating. This is film spotting a bit of the trailer there for the movie that we're planning to review next week. It's called Dope. 
from director Rick Famuyiwa. It's a comedy, a fish-out-of-water story, a coming-of-age story, set in a tough L.A. neighborhood. It was a pretty big hit that came out of this year's Sundance Film Festival. Michael, I was planning to go to the screening that you were just at. Couldn't make it. You did get there, though, uh, yes. I assume. Yes. So I, fulfilled, I, I, fulfilled, I fulfilled my commitment. Yeah, you did it. You were much more honorable <laughs> than I was. Can you give us, without, you know... Influencing my take when I do see it at all. Can you give us just a little first impression? It's what worth seeing. It's worth seeing, okay. which is nice to say. It's a recommendable film. And um, will we have enough to talk about next week? Yes, when you will. You will. And I will say too. A lot of films coming out of Sundance have a huge amount of noise and hype behind them, and it's not necessarily the film's fault if they don't live up to it. But you can you can experience some serious disappointments six months later when they actually hit theaters in your city. This is this is not disappointing. It's it's very interesting. So yeah, I, I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. Well, Adam and I will get to that next week, and we also hope to spend a couple of minutes on the latest from director David Gordon Green. That one is called Manglehorn, and it stars Al Pacino and Holly Hunter. That is the film that inspired our current poll question. You can find the poll question over at filmspotting.net. We want you to name Pacino's best performance since his best actor win back in 1992. That was a win he got for Scent of a Woman. Now, Michael, here are the choices that we gave listeners. Carlito from De Palma's Carlito's Way, Lefty Ruggiero from Donnie Brasco, Lieutenant Vincent Hanna from Michael Mann's Heat, and from Mann's The Insider, 60 Minutes producer Lowell Bergman. And finally, one more here, Will Dormer from Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. Pacino, busy guy, so he made a number of other films in that time. So we're going to also give listeners an other choice. It's hard to tell if listeners are choosing their favorite Pacino performance or their favorite film starring Pacino. But as of today, neither performance for Michael Mann, currently the leading vote-getter. Hmm. Of these choices, Michael, which way would you go? You know, I don't know if it came out before or after Scent of a Woman, but I would uh, I would vote other, and I would go Ricky Roma in Glengarry Glen Ross, which is a pretty good film version of a really great David Mamet play. And that is... 1992 as well, so you're you're dead on there. I don't know if we just overlooked that or... But you know what? I would go, I'll tell you, I I always mess up your polls. (laughs) I I, I come in, I mess them up. Uh, So are you the guy who gets online at filmspotting.net and just votes every category over and over and over? Is that what you mean? (laughs) No, no, I don't mean that. Oh, I'm just saying I would would bend the rule to include (laughs) my, my, my personal favorite Pacino performance from the last, say, 20 years, Big Boy Caprice. In Dick Tracy, to me, that's I I I think it's hilarious that that's his most understated work. No, <laughs> no, you're you're way what year is that? That was like 1990, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, but I, I know way old. I'm telling you, you, I'm messing up your poll. But I'm saying that's 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 the performance to me that I get that I get the most enjoyment out of. If listeners want to vote correctly, they can do that at <laughs> filmspotting.net. And if you leave us some feedback, which we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. All right, we're going to do a little bonus, Michael. You agreed to stick around for a little bit, and actually, this was your idea yes. to talk about. Jurassic World. It's humbling to acknowledge that uh, apparently film spotting, we have zero impact on global box office numbers. Last week, Ab and I gave an overall pretty negative review of Jurassic World. I think it kept getting more negative the longer we talked together, so we just right. had to cut it off Well, at the some more point. you drank, the more the, <laughs> well, that the, happens you know, too. The more dour you get. What happened though? Jurassic World went on to have the biggest opening weekend of, let's see here, yep, that's right, of all time. <laughs> About half billion dollars. More than worth a half, more than business. a half a billion. Yes. More than that. Yeah. 
yeah. here in the States and overseas, that is. Now, from the look of your review, I wouldn't say your take is too far from ours, but you at least had a clever way of saying it. Please tell me that headline idea I saw was yours, Reptile Dysfunction. No, I love oh. that headline. Carmel Carrillo, the movie's editor. Uh, Brilliant. Genius. Brilliant. We're going to spend a couple minutes on Jurassic World in this week's bonus content. That is available to subscribers of the Film Spotting app. For more information about getting that app, visit filmspotting.net and click on, yep, that's right, apps. All right, time at last, Michael, for Massacre Theater. Okay, we perform a scene badly. You get a chance at winning a prize. Last time, we massacred this. Basically, it's the same one I've been having since I was 12. What happened? No, it's, it's too embarrassing. Don't tell me. Okay, there's this guy. What's he look like? I don't know. He's just kind of faceless. Faceless guy. Okay, then what? He rips off my clothes. Then what happens? That's it. That's it? A faceless guy rips off your clothes, and that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were 12. Exactly the same. Well, sometimes I varied it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. That's Meg Ryan Sally and Billy Crystal as Harry in When Harry Met Sally from 1989, written by Nora Ephron, directed by Rob Reiner. So a couple weeks ago on episode 541, we reviewed the abysmal Aloha. That's the latest from Cameron Crowe, who is himself badly in need of Cameron Crowe-style redemption at this point. We paired that review with a sacred cow discussion of Crowe's debut, the classic Say Anything, with John Cusack and Ioni Sky. The tie-in? With When Harry Met Sally, as many film spotting listeners were able to identify, Say Anything and Sally, both romantic comedies, broadly speaking, both also released in 1989. Also on that episode, Adam and I revisited our top five films from 1989. We got this bit of feedback from longtime listener Jim Polini. He's in Bethpage, New York. He offered this additional tie-in. Like Aloha, the near classic When Harry Met Sally was helmed by a big name, Talented director Rob Reiner, who lost his chops seemingly without warning. Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, and Misery were followed by Pablum, like North, the American president, the story of us, and the bucket list. A Few Good Men is watchable for the climactic courtroom scene with Jack Nicholson, but not much else. After seeing Say Anything, almost famous Vanilla Sky and Jerry Maguire, I couldn't imagine skipping a new Cameron Crowe movie, much less his next three outings. Same thing with Reiner, much to my disappointment. Wow. Fair comparison, would you say? Uh, I'm, I'm looking here at Reiner's filmography. In addition to those titles that Jim mentioned, Rumor Has It, in 2005, he made Alex and Emma. I think I, I think I might have seen that. Yeah. Uh, the Story of Us and something in 2010 called Flipped, which I had no awareness of. So yeah, I saw that. That's a, that's okay. kind of YA, you know, like children's literature adaptation. That uh, so Reiner and the Crow comparison. Maybe Jim's onto something. Yeah, there. and part of it with Reiner because he's not he's not necessarily originating his own material. Uh, he, you know, you're just wondering: is he losing his commercial instincts, or does he simply not have access to the material he wants to do? You don't know. This is this is this is the story of Hollywood, right? And when Harry met Sally, as you mentioned earlier, written by Nora Ephron, so different sort of material there. He was working with maybe a lot of film spotting listeners familiar with that film because we got a number of entries. Michael, go ahead and reach into the film spotting hat, pick out this week's winner. Okay, and the winner is. Adolfo Acosta, Arlington Heights, Illinois. Adolfo is a long, long-time listener. Congrats. You can email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your Filmspotting t-shirt. What happened to 
happened to the canola line? Max, you're supposed to say forget about it, Sanchez. The old man likes his canola. Look, I made a mistake, all right? It didn't make any difference anyway. Hey, I'm letting it go. But don't say it doesn't matter. Every line matters. Well, Michael, I just found out that you're going to be at a bit of a disadvantage for this massacre theater scene. Not only have you never seen the film this is from. Who told and you it's that? A, it's, Who told you that? I have my sources. Okay. It's a bit of a shock to me, actually. Yeah. But you also, I don't know, I can't help you out who the actress is that's playing the part you're going to recite. Right. So you don't have that to go on. I'm just going to assume I, it's Olivia de Havilland. Okay. I don't that'll know why, help. But, you know what? That's good. You're heading in the right direction. Okay. You're also going to start. So I'm going to give you the action. I'm ready. Are you ready? Yes. And action. You look lost. I do. Where are you headed? Well, I was just about to figure that out. Well, that's 83 South, and this road here will hook you up with I-40 East. If you turn right, that'll take you to Amarillo, Flagstaff, California. And if you head back that direction, you'll find a whole lot of nothing all the way to Canada. I got it. All right, then. Good luck, cowboy. (laughs) The trick is the trick is to not take one approach to a character. You have to take you have to represent all approaches in one take. In one take. Decide. I was going to ask you for directions to get home tonight, but you didn't seem so sure. There was well, I was there was thoughtful pauses. That's what it was. All right. Well, if you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, June 29. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Top five time when we come back, we're going to be revisiting a list Michael and I did a little over a year ago, naming our favorite actor-director pairs. If only I could add Pete Doctor and Bing Bong to that list. (laughs) Stay with us. 7.45 in the morning, I'm leaving my house. I'm the director of films like Finding Nemo and Wally, and now John Carter, and you are listening to Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. The Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips is in for Adam this week. It is top five time, and this week we're going to revisit one from last March that you and I did together, Michael, actor director pairs. And what a time that was. You remember? You yeah. remember? It was almost as fond as our manimals' time. <laughs> 
Film Spotty listeners will not be disappointed as your list, it does include a classic Michael Phillips. I don't want to say cheat might be too strong of a word, a word I'd rather reserve for Adam. Maybe creative interpretation is a better way to put it. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll argue with you about that later. Okay, let's get into the top five with the Duke. We go charging in, they'll kill her, and you know it. That's what I'm counting on. I know you are. Well, it ain't going to be that way. She's alive and she's going to stay alive. Living with Comanches ain't being alive. Better she's alive and living with Comanches and her brains bashed out. Now, son, I know this is a bitter thing to say, but there's more at stake here than your sister. There sure is. I'm going to tell you something. Didn't mean to speak of it, but I'm going to tell you now. You remember that scalp strung on scars, Lance? Long yeah, I saw made. it, and don't try to tell me it was Aunt Martha's or Lucy's. It was your mother's. Come on, son. But that don't change it. That don't change nothing. You may not agree that they're the best actor-director duo, but they were certainly the most productive. That was John Wayne there as Ethan Edwards in John Ford's The Searchers, one of 21 films that the two worked on together. Actor-director duos is a topic that film spotting has tackled before. Adam and Maddie did this in 2008, back on episode number 215. Taking a look at those lists, not only did Adam have John Wayne and John Ford, but he named his list the De Niro Scorsese Memorial, set that one aside. (laughs) And a couple other picks here, which I'm just going to mention because I gave them serious consideration and didn't end up putting them on my list just because Adam had mentioned them. Toshiro Mifuni and Akira Kurosawa, James Stewart and Alfred Hitchcock. That's probably the one that came first to my mind. And then looking at Maddie's list, he had uh, one in particular I thought about, Philip Seymour Hoffman working with Paul Thomas Anderson. We spent a lot of time on our Philip Seymour Hoffman tribute show talking about uh, the wonderful work those two did together. So some I considered ended up going a different direction. Michael, I don't know if any of those are on your list, but maybe talk about how you did put this one together because we're looking at not only all of movie history, which is rich with such collaborations, but trying to rank those. I'm glad I had that out a little bit in Adam and Maddie's previous list, so I didn't feel quite so pressured to cover it all. I mean, I guess more than a lot of the categories uh, we've talked about on this uh, this show, either with you, Josh, or just with you and Adam, this this one, we're spoiled for choice. The idea of ranking these is kind of unseemly and ridiculous. As it is every week, really. I don't know why this one seems harder, harder than usual for me to really get into like, well, what's what's number three and what's number five? There's no question about the historical importance of the pairing of John Ford and John Wayne in so many different types of films. It's not on my list for purely subjective reasons. It's uh, Although I revere a lot of John Ford's work, I'm strictly going with the movies I return to and the performances I return to with certain directors for pleasure, for pure pleasure. To my grave, I will be struggling with why I don't revere the Western genre as highly as I do many other film genres, hmm. although there's plenty of Westerns that I do I, I do feel really personally connected to, and that'll be in one of mine, at least uh, one of my five. But um, yeah, it's just, it's not about historical importance for me. With It's purely favorites. All right. With that in mind, what's your number five? My number five is a very kind of modest pairing. It's it's the most contemporary of the, of the five I ended up with, and that's the film's of Jeff Nichols made with Michael Shannon. And uh, the, again, it's purely personal. This Michael Shannon is an actor that I saw on Chicago stages in various theater productions for years as a theater critic before he had really hit it in the movies. And I just thought this guy's got an extraordinary range. Although even then, even a decade ago, Josh, he was being 
I think, unfairly typecast as the psycho and the, the guy who's, who plays the, you know, the, whoever's going to upset the apple cart in any given situation. But then I started seeing more and more plays where Shannon could really just show off what he can do. You know, just a really formidable technical actor, very good with different dialects, different character types. And then in the films of Jeff Nichols, most recently he played a supporting role in Mud, a film I think we both liked a great deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you look at shotgun stories where he's really the center of the action there. And of course, Take Shelter with Jessica Chastain, where you have two really fiercely terrific performances anchoring that. That's th- th- These two are communicating. And this is what you look for, I think, in an actor-director pairing. Whatever kind of story is being told, whatever sort of genre the film may or may not fit into, you want to have a sense that if an actor is working with that same director more than once, that there's a reason other than just they enjoy each other's company, that they really, that the director, who's often very often the writer as well, or the co-writer, is finding that that actor is is uniquely attuned to the kind of dialogue and the kind of visual storytelling that they're after. And I think Nichols, while he's not a flashy visual stylist, he's telling the kind of stories and take shelter and mud, and hopefully, you know, we'll we'll get dozens more in the future, uh, and hopefully, a lot of them with Shannon. That that I just feel authentic, and very much of the heartland in a way that doesn't make me sick to my stomach in terms of nostalgia or, you know, sort of the wrong kind of faux sincerity. I, I just I just find that Shannon, has, you know, thanks to Jeff Nichols, Shannon has been able to show that he's got. Uh, kind of an interior life that can be brought. It's not all General Zod. Yeah, right. Well, talking about Shannon's early career, too, we didn't get a chance to touch on this when we reviewed Groundhog Day to the Sacred Cow a there few he is. weeks back. And there he he is. was in that diner scene. I, that, I didn't remember that and watching it again, the scene where Bill Murray talks to all of the patrons in the diner. And, and, he's, Michael, and he's the young groom to be. Right. The yeah. groom to be is upset when there's a cold feet there. The, I noticed that too. And yeah, Shannon and Nichols are both film spotting favorites. And a revealing of that is the fact that when I heard about Mud and saw that Shannon just had a supporting part, a little bit of me went, oh. Because I wanted him to have, you know, it's it's good for directors to work with other actors, obviously, but I was still on such a high from Take Shelter. I wanted that to be another tour de force but, but opportunity. Also, but also, weren't you really relieved and gratified that in Mud, the part played by Shannon is a, is is just this sort of shambling, low-key— And he serves it well. Amiable he guy. Yes, yes. And, and because, because Shannon's an interesting and complicated screen presence— and just a really first-rate actor, he's he brings kind of this unspoken undercurrent to of sort of ordinary scenes. And, and I think that speaks to the trust an actor and director have, too, is that one will be able to take a smaller part in a future film and not try to go too far with it. Yeah. You know, that he's there to serve the film. So that certainly comes out in their pairings. For my number five, I'm going to also go with a contemporary pick, and it's Johnny Depp and Tim Burton. And these two have burned so many bridges in recent years that this is not going to be a popular pick. I already know this <laughs> from talking to people on Facebook and Twitter about this topic. Alice in Wonderland is especially dreadful. Dark Shadows, I found largely uninspiring, some interesting things going on in the edges. And Depp for his part, has certainly taken this penchant for oddity outside of the Burton realm. I mean, don't blame Burton for the Lone Ranger, what's going on there. But if you consider their pre-Alice body of work, I think it does speak very strongly to a unique, creative, 
partnerships. What do you, what are you really jazzed about personally? Well, with I'll David? start. You know, what I'm really jazzed about Ed Wood and Edward Scissorhands. I think those are the two pinnacle films for them. But even something like Sweeney Todd, uh, you could argue that it took their particularly well matched sensibilities to make a movie version of the Sondheim musical work. I am a fan of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I know it's not as good as the Gene Wilder version. Few films are, but it did Whoa, capture. Wait a minute. I don't. I have no love for the. You old. have no love for the uh, old. Oh, uh, Michael. I've, I've qualified. Uh, qualified interest. Do you like the Burton version better? Uh, I'm I'm just okay on that too. I just I you know what I love that I love the Roald Dahl book. Maybe, I love maybe that book too. too. Much. Yeah. Well, I th- I think that the Burton version I think it still does manage to capture that whimsical misery of Dahl in its own unique way. So yeah. I have I have a place for both of those films. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wilder obviously gives a better performance than Depp, but Depp's still doing interesting things. And don't discount something like Corpse Bride, which is Burton's uh, eerie, beautiful 2005 stop motion film, largely forgotten in his filmography. But Depp gives a very delicate vocal performance there. But yeah, let's get to Ed Wood, which is one of Burton's That's best That's my favorite films. of theirs. That's my favorite of theirs. I think also probably Depp's funniest performance. And then Edward Scissorhands, I do consider it to be Burton's masterpiece to this day. And, and much of that really has to do with the pantomime pathos that Depp brings to that part. Those are your hands. Those are your hands. What happened to you? Where are your parents? Um, your mother? Your father? He didn't wake up. In the beginning of their career around that time, Edward Scissorhands, they may have seemed like a really odd pair considering where Depp was coming from. It was almost like the weird goth kid in high school suddenly befriended the prom king. And <laughs> there was no way this is going to work. But they, they've managed to give us this handful of, of wonderful movies that I don't think anyone else could have. So for that, they're my number five. I think for a lot of these picks, uh, Josh, too, I'm, I'm, only, I'm looking at two or three pairings that really live live with me still and not necessarily the entire body of work but that's that's yeah. not everything has to work yeah. but why, if they why? get a couple that, that are just magic there's something there in the, in the alchemy between them so why is the ed wood performance that johnny depp gives why is that his his loosest not just funniest but kind of the most interesting and most spontaneous performance he ever gave doesn't he seem to be having the most fun there Maybe I mean, that it, is. it seems like there's something uh, just loose about that whole film uh, that captures the chaos of filmmaking itself Mm. uh, and the improvisation of sets and Depp doesn't feel it doesn't seem like he has any pressure to make that movie or that character work for himself he's there just having fun and it really comes through on the screen yeah I got to say those sweaters do look comfortable yeah I think it was the sweaters (laughs) what was your number four pick my number four is uh, a lighthearted pick uh, Ingmar Bergman and Lee Roman's work (laughs) yes yes Um, uh, we can talk about uh, a little less grim than the recent Muppets that's right (laughs) just slightly though Um, Bergman did you know amazing work with all kinds of actors a lot of whom we worked with in the theater earlier on I mean just as you could you could just as easily swap in Bergman's work with Max von Sydow from the Seventh Seal onward. Um, uh, but I think w- with Ullman, he found, you know, and it was a very complicated kind of tortured relationship both off screen and on. But with Ullman, he really found the conduit for the kind of existential and emotional dilemmas that he was that he was so good at exploring. And the film I really would love for people to discover if they don't know it yet is Bergman's Shame, which stars 
Ullman and Von Saito, who I think I'm mispronouncing, but there, there you go. This is a lesser-known great film from Bergman that's set just vaguely in the just the very near future, and there's sort of an unnamed, undetailed war going on, and it's just basically how wartime affects this couple, and it's a tale of infidelity, among other things. But it's um, it's got a very, uh, very different quality for Bergman. It doesn't have that kind of diagrammed, studied. Fierce, you know, careful composition. It feels a little looser, a little, a little rougher hewn, I'd say. But the performances are pure magic and pure truth. <laughs> and it's it's a film. It's one of my. It's probably my favorite Bergman film, and it's certainly the one of of the great ones, as I say, that's the least known. And I think it's probably the peak in their collaboration in Ullman's work with Bergman. So see it if you haven't. And um, you know, Bergman's may not be the filmmaker that I cherish the most in my life, but it's when you link, think of all the amazing work he's done with serious themes that don't that don't die as cinema. A lot, uh, yeah, a lot of seriously intentioned filmmakers simply don't have movie making in them the way Bergman does. My number four is also a non-American pairing, though a little bit more recent than Ullman and Bergman. It is Tony Leung and Wong Kar Wai. They've made seven films together, and those do include In the Mood for Love, Chunking Express, Happy Together, and then last year's The Grand Master. And just looking at Leung physically, uh, he almost seems as if he's been molded by Wong uh, from clay, just specifically to be in his movies. I mean, he perfectly matches the director's mise-en-scene, which is defined by stillness, I think, and elegance and these gorgeous surfaces. These are recurring elements in his films, and Leung does fit there really well. But he is more than a perfect model. I mean, that makes him sound a little bit like a well-matched prop. And I think it does go beyond that in their films together. His face often projects this quiet longing, which is a key component to so many of Wong's films. With only imperceptible expressions, Leung can make us feel all these roiling emotions and turmoil that's going on underneath. And I think that's in sync really with how Wong's images overall often do work. There are these pristine surfaces that are masking a world of tremors. Uh, There's real drama, there's real emotion that's going on underneath what he's showing us right there on the screen. Uh, If I had a representative film uh, to recommend, it would be In the Mood for Love, which I've talked about before on the show. It's a 2000 drama about a man and a woman who are neighbors and suspect their respective spouses are having an affair. And and that to me is just that performance by Leung is the epitome of, of how he services the films that Wong imagines. In a funny way, that's a, your pick there is maybe, the even though it's not Hollywood, it's the most sort of old Hollywood of the It has that feel, it's yeah, got, their films do. Yeah, it's got, you know, he's, he's using them like a, like a really well-regarded, you know, highly prized studio contract player, you know, and, and the actor and the director speak the same language. That they do. We are at number three. Michael, what do you have in that slot? Uh, my number three is Orson Welles directing Orson Welles. That's ah. that's one of my favorite <laughs> actor-director pairings right from the first. Uh, Citizen Kane, when you look at the performance he's giving under his own direction, and it, it continued, that this relationship continued all the way through, uh, I think most fruitfully, uh, Chimes at Midnight in the 60s, where he plays Falstaff, in a film that is is very messy and in in many ways technically compromised in terms of sound quality and other things, I, I adore what Wells is doing as Falstaff in that film, though. And that I think it took him that long to discover a kind of quietude and simplicity 
in in performing for the camera. You know, I, I mean, also one of the great the great moments of certainly for Wells on screen in any film, whether one of his own or not, is Touch of Evil, where he's playing the most corrupt cop along the Mexico-U.S. border, no. Hank Quinlan. In any free country, a policeman uh, is supposed to enforce the law, and the law protects the guilty as well as the innocent. job is tough enough. It's supposed that. to be. It has to be tough. A policeman's job is only easy in a police state. That's the whole point, Captain. Who is the boss, the cop or the law? Where's your wife? Right? What do you mean? What do you mean? You know where she is as well as I do. Sergeant Menzies drove her. She's at the motel. Oh. You're still here? Yes, I'm checking out now and joining her. Do you have a reason? No special reason at all. No, I just wondered. And that's a film I've, I fell in love with as a high school kid just because I, I'd never seen anything quite that sleazy, quite that tawdry. And it's just the greatest B-movie ever made. Wells, as a director, is often very hard on actors because he's he's so aggressive and stylized in terms of what we're looking at and how and the angles by which we're looking at it. There's just Actors have to kind of step up and compete with Wells's directorial attack, and nobody could do it better than than Wells himself. <laughs> he really knew how to fill a frame, often just physically, in terms of like Hank Quinlan and Touch of Evil, but and or Falstaff uh, a decade later. But he had the kind of theatrical brio as an actor that he also brought to his work behind the camera. And I think the results, you look at the best three or four, the results were just inspired. That seems right to describe it as a competition, actually, because you do get the sense in some of those films, and I probably touch of evil more than any other of the director Wells upping the ante with his filmmaking and the actor Wells having to respond, having to say, oh, yeah, you, you're going to do that. Well, then watch this. Well, watch me eat this candy bar <laughs> exactly. in a way that could only be you know, only be done by me. It's yeah. just so fun to see see that back and forth. Well, I don't know, Michael, that that may be a cheat pick. Uh, you're kind of uh, trying to pull something here. I will submit that to the film spotting corporate attorney and, oh, and we'll get a ruling for now. For now, le- we'll allow it. going legal on me. Very nice. <laughs> My number three is going to be Penelope Cruz and Pedro Almodovar, uh, who made Volver together, Broken Embraces, All About My Mother, and a handful of other films. They were both fairly well established in their careers before they began working together. Uh, Cruz had already gone off for a stint in Hollywood by the time of 1999's All About My Mother. That was not their first film together. Live Flesh was their first film, but it was their first major collaboration, I would say. And in researching some of this, I came across a 2009 Guardian interview where Almodovar had something interesting to say about watching Cruz work in America. She got to Hollywood very quickly, and everybody wanted to work with her. Because she is very beautiful, it became more to do with that. She became a fashion icon, and they didn't care if she was a good actress or not. That's what I don't like about Hollywood. They never conceive of giving an actor something unusual. They have to be safe in everything that they do. I think what's revealing about her work with Elmodovar is that he enabled her to do the opposite of that when they did work together. I mean, if you think about All About My Mother, she plays a pregnant nun. That's not exactly a Hollywood conventional role. Their triumph film, in my opinion, together is Volver, though, in which Cruz plays a working class wife and mother in Madrid who gets caught up in a murder plot. It's sort of their nod to Hitchcock. Uh, and his pairings with Grace Kelly, perhaps. Mm. Uh, I think it's interesting. You talked about Tony Leung being a classic Hollywood actor and Wong Kar Wai using him that way. I think 
Almodovar very much uses Cruz as a classic Hollywood screen goddess in this film while also rooting the story in the real world. Uh, she just she does give this Hollywood performance, but she brings both glamour and grit to it. So my number three is Penelope Cruz, Pedro Almodovar. Good pick. How about you at number two, Michael? This is tough, but I went with Catherine Hepburn working with George mm-hmm. Cukor in, in films, um, among others, many films in the 30s, but my favorite is the collaboration uh, they they did together with Cary Grant on the 1938 film version of Holiday. And that's a film that precedes the better-known and widely loved The Philadelphia Story by two years. Both come from plays by Philip Berry, and Hepburn in Holiday plays the sister of uh, a woman who's engaged to marry this carefree, wealthy young stockbroker, Johnny Case, played by Cary Grant, who wants to basically retire at age 30 and then maybe go to work later when he's 50 or so. And it's a play that came out of the late 20s before the crash, before the Depression. And by the time the movie rolled around, it all seemed a little, I think, to audiences of the day, just kind of irrelevant and frivolous. And why are these rich people's problems any anything to do with me, blah, 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 that kind of thing. I think decades hence, though, Josh, th- this thing seems timelessly funny and and r- really s- serious in, in its kind of exploration about what what is going to make a marriage work and what might undermine it from the beginning. And I think the work that Cukor gets out of Hepburn in this is the most, it's the first time audiences may have seen her as a truly vulnerable and kind of um, heartbroken character. She's played all. She had, by that time had played all kinds of different parts, mostly period films. A lot of them with Cukor, um, but uh, the work in Holiday, and then I think later maybe capped by the Philadelphia Story, is 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 just it, it proves that Cukor was not just a, quote woman a great woman's director, which was kind of the rap on Cukor at the time. And it's also what got him kicked off of Gone with the Wind. Many say. Um, because he just wasn't enough. He couldn't handle Clark Gable or whatever. It's a peak Hollywood film, and like a lot of Hollywood films, Josh, especially from that time, it didn't really catch on with the audience of the day, but uh, the day is really now. You see, Case, the trouble with me is that I never could decide whether I wanted to be Joan of Arc, Florence Nightingale, or John L. Lewis. What's the matter? You're fed up? To the neck. What, you mean with this million-dollar museum, all those marble pillars down there? Case... Compared to the life I lead, the last man in a chain gang thoroughly enjoys himself. Well, maybe what you need is some time off from what you've been doing, you know, day in, day out. You mean from what I've not been doing, days in, please, years out. I think Holiday is quite a less flattering look at affluent life than something like the Philadelphia story, actually. It, it has a lot of bite yeah, to it, yeah, and a that, lot of that has to do with Hepburn. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. Philadelphia story sort of maxes on the wealth uh, mm-hmm. a, little, a little harder than Holiday yep, does. Yeah. yeah. Well, my number two uh, involves one of the stars of Holiday, actually. It's Cary Grant and his work with Alfred Hitchcock. I'm going to give a nod here to Adam's pick of James Stewart and Hitchcock. I think that's the right one. If I had to choose, I would definitely go there. But his pairings with Grant, uh, they're nothing to sneeze at. You've got Suspicion, which played with Grant's heroic image a bit. Maybe some argue it didn't play with it quite enough and could have pushed that a little bit further. Still very good film. Notorious is the tragic romance 
really more romance than a thriller, I'd say, with Grant and Ingrid Bergman as spies and potential lovers who mostly torture each other throughout the film. <laughs> I think it's it's Grant's seething jealousy in that picture that makes it work more than Bergman, uh, for me at least. They also made To Catch a Thief together, which is something of a lark for Hitchcock. And Grant does at first seem a bit unautomatic. He plays this charming, retired cat burglar. But then he and Grace Kelly start generating sparks, and Grant really does come alive. John, tell me something. You're going to rob that villa we cased this afternoon, aren't you? Oh, I suppose rob is archaic. You'd say knockover? Oh. Don't worry, I'm very good at secrets. Tell me, have you ever been on a psychiatrist's couch? Don't change the subject. I know the perfect time to do it. Next week, the Sanfords are holding their annual gala. Everyone who counts will be there. I'll get you an invitation. It's an 18th century costume affair. There'll be thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of the world's most elegant jewelry. Some of the guests will be staying for the weekend. We'll get all the information and we'll do it together. What do you say? My only comment would be highly censorable. Give up, John. Admit who you are. Even in this light, I can tell where your eyes are looking. North by Northwest, in that one you could say the crop duster is the star, but what I like about Grant's performance is it, it's it's definitely comic as Roger Thornhill, the man who's mistaken for a spy. So I wouldn't say that any of these are probably Rear Window or Vertigo, Hitchcock's pairings with James Stewart, but still not a bad handful of films. They had the, You know what they had? I think, Josh, I think Cary Grant and Alfred Hitchcock had very complimentary senses of humor. Mm. That's You wouldn't necessarily say that of, of Stewart. Right, you what, don't think of humor, that's true. Y- yeah, and when you you see Stewart, I remember seeing Rear Window when it finally, it was out of circulation for a while, and they finally got theatrical releases back in the 80s, I believe. And I, that was the first James Stewart performance that really took the back of my head off in Rear Window. And it's not because of the the, the comic relief stuff. It's it's when you have scenes where Stewart is looking across the way and, and he's unable to help Grace Kelly when Raymond Burr is about to come back to his own apartment. Mm-hmm. She's sneaking around in there. The anguish he goes through is just something that you don't... I had never seen from Stewart at that point because I hadn't, I just hadn't seen enough yet. And that's, uh, but Grant, Grant's work with Hitchcock, you just, you just know that they had the, they were smiling at the same things on the set. And I think that kind of debonair, um, simpatico sense is just all over everything they did. Well, that brings us to our number one pick for actor, director, pairings. Michael, who do you have? I've got Cary Grant again. Cary you know, Grant. And not, but now with Hitchcock, with Howard Hawks. Aha. Uh-huh. And they made five films together, three of which I think are amazing. The other two, I Was a Male War Bride from 1949, Monkey Business 1952, a broader kind of sex comedy, I guess you call it. And, you know, it, it certainly interesting in different ways, both films. But um, the work that Hawks and Grant did together just in a very short period of time, bringing up Baby... 1938, Only Angels Have Wings a year later, and then The Pinnacle, I think, His Girl Friday in 1940. You look at those three films, Josh, back-to-back, and I defy anybody to say Cary Grant is always the same in every picture, even if they happen to like him. That's always the rap we have against the the most revered of our movie stars, that, you know, John Wayne, always the same. They're just playing a persona. They're playing themselves, whatever. and, And really, with any movie star worth his or her salt, that's not true to begin with, but it's particularly not true with people like Stewart and Cary Grant, I think, because when you look at the kind of arch, brittle, high style, almost otherworldly kind of comic exaggeration of bringing a baby and just the fact that he's such a good physical comedian. And, and that film was very kind of off-putting and big flop with audiences in the day in 38. Only Angels Have Wings, a more dramatic role, uh, 
but the the work there is the subtlest he'd ever done, I think, and the most interior, the the moodiest, I think. I think Hawks really had a way of just stripping away the BS from almost every every performer. With His Girl Friday, you have a mixture of every kind of Cary Grant there ever was. You mm-hmm. have high, medium, and low comic wiles kind of all competing with each other. You know, amazing verbal dexterity with Rosalind Russell. Uh, the fact that they got that, I've said this before on this show, but the fact that they got essentially a gender-switched version of the play, the front page done, a three-hour play done in about 87 minutes, uh, is still a, a miracle uh, of pacing uh, to me. And it's, um, I don't know, I, I, I continue to say that I think the performances you get in His Girl Friday with Grant and Rosalind Russell, it's like Beatrice and Benedict from Much Ado About Nothing. I mean, it's yeah. that its that great. <laughs> and, and Hawks is the reason. He's my favorite. A lot of people really do put John Ford at the very top of every list, not just not just for historical importance in in Hollywood, but just the the filmmaker that speaks most directly to them. And I think I've always I've always considered Hawks, you know, more that way for me over someone like Ford. Um, so anyway, the work they the, these two did together just uh, thrills me. Well, well, how long is it? How long is what? You know what? How long is it since we've seen each other? Oh well, let's see. Uh, I spent six weeks in Reno, then Bermuda, about four months, I guess. Seems like yesterday to me. Maybe it was yesterday, Hildy. Been seeing me in your dreams? No, no, Mama doesn't dream about you anymore, Wally. You wouldn't know the old girl now. Ah, uh, yes, I would. I'd know you any time, any, any place, place, anywhere. Ah, oh, you're repeating yourself, Walter. That's the speech you made the night you proposed. Yeah, I know that you still remember it. Of course, I remember it. If I didn't remember it, I wouldn't have divorced you. Yes, yeah, I wish you hadn't done that, Hildy. Done what? Divorce me. Makes a fellow lose all faith in himself. Gives him a... Almost gives him a feeling he wasn't wanted. Oh, now, look, Junior, that's what divorces are for. Well, you can't go wrong buttressing your pick with His Girl Friday, one, one of my favorite films as well. I did go in a different direction, though. Still classic Hollywood to a degree, a little bit older period, but it's Billy Wilder and Jack Lemmon. Oh, good. When I looked at my finalists for this list and just compared where the films they made together stand, I had to put these two at the top for two of their movies alone, Some Like It Hot and The Apartment. Some Like It Hot has Lemon and Tony Curtis as musicians. They're on the run from the mob, disguise themselves as women enjoying this female jazz band. Yes, it's a drag comedy, but if you watch Lemon's performance here, it's remarkable how little of the humor comes from the cross-dressing. I mean, it's not a shtick performance, and, and I don't think this is a shtick film, even though there's some of that in it. And then look at The Apartment, which I think is the best representation of the persona that Wilder and Lemon did establish together, and that's the dork as romantic comedy hero. I mean, we still have that. It's fairly common today, but they really kind of cemented that as a legitimate screen character with the apartment. Uh, This has Lemon as a peon at an insurance company. He lends his apartment to executives for their midday tryst. And Lemon is adept at the farce. This movie has some of that. But I think Wilder also brings out the melancholy that lies behind the joking. And uh, that's that's really one of the key reasons why this movie is a masterpiece. I see you bought some napkins. Yeah, might as well go all the way. You know, I used to live like Robinson Crusoe. I mean, shipwrecked among eight million people. And then one day I saw a footprint in the sand. And there you were. It's a wonderful thing. Dinner for two? Do you usually eat alone? No, no. Sometimes I have dinner with Ed Sullivan. Or sometimes Dinah Shaw or Perry Como. The other night I had dinner with Mae West. 
course, she was much younger then. Cheers. Cheers. Of the other seven pictures they made together, you've got the front page, you've got the fortune cookie, and you've got Avanti. But really, after Some Like It Hot in the Apartment, uh, I didn't even need any others for them to make my list. Right. So. Ir- Irma LaDuce. Uh, that's uh, another one. Came, yes. It came just after. It was a huge hit. And that's that's not nearly the kind of film. That, that's not worth wrestling with the way those two films really continue to inspire people. Yeah. Those, those are two of the greats. Now, how about honorable mentions? You talked about how difficult this list was for you, Michael. Are there a couple that almost made it onto your list? Yeah, I mean, absolutely what you said before about Paul Thomas Anderson and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and it's not just because Hoffman happened to die recently. The work is amazing, and the fact that that Hoffman and Anderson went out together on The Master, that that's one of Hoffman's final performances, is is, is just a testament to how, how simpatico they really were. I think, um, you know, the toughest in terms of old Hollywood for me, mm-hmm. if you look at James Stewart and Anthony Mann and the films oh, okay. they made together, largely Westerns, I think it was eight, eight films together overall. And that that just, personally, that meant a lot to me to find films like The Naked Spur and Winchester 73, finally, because it, it, I was slow to come to Westerns as a genre. I was, for some reason, I never considered Stewart one of the top, flight Hollywood stars until I saw the work there because you have such vulnerable, tortured, and knotted up protagonists in the middle of those, especially the Westerns they did. It's not the kind of taciturn heroics that I kind of resist in some ways in Westerns. Uh, it, it's a real kind of living, breathing human being in the middle of it. And and I think man's very kind of unfussy way with just shooting interesting landscapes in a way that goes way beyond postcard imagery, keeps a good focus on on the people at the center, especially Naked Spur. People should see that if they haven't, um, especially also for Robert Ryan's performances, this cackling antagonist, uh, amazing work. And uh, Stuart, yeah, Stuart and Mann, that, would, that, was a, that was a tough pairing to overlook. Well, I have a couple honorable mentions as well. In addition to the Adam and Maddie picks that I mentioned at the top and would certainly agree with, looking at classic Hollywood, Humphrey Bogart and John Houston oh, with yeah. the Maltese Falcon yeah. and the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, I thought about James Stewart and Frank Capra because I'm one of those people who goes for It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Their sensibilities working together there are key. When you think of comedy greats, uh, we spent some time talking about Blazing Saddles, which was a supporting part for Gene Wilder, but his work with Mel Brooks there. Good luck. And in addition to Young Frankenstein, the producers had to give that pair some consideration. And then a couple of contemporary names that probably just too soon to make a list like this, but perhaps down the road, Bill Murray and Wes Anderson. Oh, yeah. We talked a lot about them on our recent Grand Budapest show. Michael Fassbender and Steve McQueen, three fantastic films they've already made together. And then I'll just throw this one out there to make people angry, Will Ferrell and Adam McKay. I mean, Ferrell's films with McKay, they're his best. Yeah, they are. Talladega Nights. Uh, yeah, I'm not that crazy about that, but the first Anchorman. You like that one better? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, well, that's a pairing that works yeah. with me. You know, another another pairing that kind of goes back to the Cary Grant Hawks thing for me that I wish I'd uh, had room for is is Grace Kelly and Hitchcock. Because it, and I, yes. don't lo- I don't love— thought lo- about that one. You know, I don't love Dial M or To Catch a Thief, which you mentioned earlier, the way I love a lot of Hitchcock films. But the rear winter performance is truly major, I think. It and, is. And, and the chemistry between Stewart and Kelly— is is fantastic, and I just Rear Window is one of my uh, my great half dozen from Hitchcock, and I think I think like Grant, I think Grace Kelly had a sense of humor that was very much in sync with the kind of dark comedy that Hitchcock gravitated to naturally. Goodbye, Jeff. Well, you mean good night. I mean what I said. Well, well, Lisa, 
couldn't we just uh, couldn't we just keep things status quo without any future well when am I going to see you again not for a long time at least not until tomorrow night and that's the last you'll hear from us at least until next week those are the top five actor-director pairs. We want to hear your picks. Email us at feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting and at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews and top fives. Also over there, filmspotting.net, take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll. Al Pacino's best performance since his 1992 Oscar win. We're going to spend a few minutes next week on Pacino's latest, Manglehorn, which is directed by David Gordon Green. Open this weekend in limited release here in Chicago. Heaven knows what. This is from writer-directors Ben and Joshua Safdie. It's a fictionalized account of homeless teenager Ariel Holmes' struggle with heroin addiction, starring Holmes herself. The aforementioned Manglehorn is also out from David Gordon Green. That's available on VOD as well in case you want to take a look at it in preparation for our conversation on next week's show. Facets this weekend has the Yes Men Are Revolting. Activist pranksters feature in this documentary about the frustrations of activism. The Gene Siskel Film Center has The Face of an Angel. This is a Michael Winterbottom film starring Kate Beckinsale and Daniel Bruhl. It's about the journalist covering the Amanda Knox murder trial. Also at the Siskel, returning is Olivier Asayas's Clouds of Sils Maria. That's with Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart. I know Adam was a fan of that film. Yeah, I'm like going to try to catch up with it definitely before we get to our top five films of the year so far list. One more here to mention over at the Music Box is The Wolf Pack. This is a Sundance hit documentary, which I saw there. Very interesting. Still working my way through it. Hmm. Definitely, if you're into movies and movie making, you will want to check it out. It's about an unusual family of teenage boys who are confined to their Lower East Side Manhattan apartment, and they spend their time reenacting scenes from their favorite movies. I gotta say, all the ones you mentioned too, this, the the Safties movie, Heaven Knows What, is I, I think it's riveting. It's like, it's the most intense movie you'll see this year, whether you like it or not. There you go. Highly recommended for Michael. Wide release, Inside Out, which we just reviewed. Dope, the other Sundance hit that we're going to get to on the show next week, along with Manglehorn. Film spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Cam. Candice Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week, it's by Girlpool. It comes from the new album Before the World Was Big. More information is at girlpoolmusic.com. Michael, thank you. This was a short but sweet one with a revisited top five, but appreciate the help as always. Succinct, but, you know, rich with insights. Don't get used to it, though. Okay. Gonna, in the fall, we're going back to full shows. So. Full shows, the roadshow engagement. Exactly. Uh, intermissions, overtures, entourage. Yeah, it'd be great. Thanks a lot, though. At chicagotribune.com slash movies. That's where people can find your reviews. On Twitter, you're at Phillips Tribune. What is going on over there at chicagotribune.com slash movies? I'm going to mention one thing I want people 
to check out. That is the video you did with Heidi Stevens playing off. Was it a New York Post piece on how women can't understand idiotic? This idiotic <laughs> New York Post piece. Kyle Smith writes as oh, Goodfellas. You know, women are, are are constitutionally incapable of understanding the world of Goodfellas. The deadpan video response. That you and Heidi gave, though, listeners, check that out. It's brilliant. What else is over there at the Tribune people should be checking out? Oh, I thought you were going to ask what else is going on in your life as a married couple, but that's that's, <laughs> I think, that's a different – I think we don't what, do a lot of video. That's okay. what makes it so brilliant, though. <laughs> <laughs> also on the website right now at the Tribune, Josh, uh, there's a piece I did on Odd Obsession Video, my favorite video store in town that moved uh, just a few doors west on Milwaukee Avenue. And it's uh, – among other questions, I'm asking these guys who are running this place. 25,000 title video store. What good and what is the purpose of a video store in the early 21st century anyway? They have good answers for that? Uh, Read it and find out, pal. All right, will do. Thanks as always, Michael. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Michael Phillips. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Well, I just found out, Michael, that you're a little bit at a disadvantage for this scene. You've never seen this movie. I've never seen I've never seen it. You can't say the movie. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Good thing it isn't live. (laughs) All right. All right. Let's back up. All right. Rosebud's a sled. All right.